Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 51. So the title that you see on the screen for the message really, maybe it's a little distant from where the message, the uh, uh, material has taken us. We'll probably get back to this space, but you might remember that uh, we sort of got to Colossians chapter one by a, uh, because of sickness and some things that transpired. And so <clears throat> looking at Colossians chapter one, we start looking at the first phrase that Jesus, he's not only the head of all creation, the verses that have gone before, but he's also the head of the body, the church. And looking at that, just looking at that phrase itself, we know that body equals church, church equals body. Paul could have easily said he's the head of the church, the body, the head of the body, the church. These are interchangeable, simultaneous terms. But as we consider these terms, body is something that is a New Testament kind of a term. It's a term that's really a new wineskin terminology, word, and description Whereas church is something that has roots in the Old Testament. The Old Testament promises, the Old Testament prophecies, the types, the shadows, the symbols, the imagery. Church is buried deep in that background in the Old Testament. And the word church, of course, is the Greek word ekklesia, ecclesia, however you pronounce it. Many of you are familiar with that term. So if I could say ekklesia, and you pretty much would go, yeah, church, ekklesia. If not, uh, just sort of putting it out there for you. So as we've looked at Christ being head of the body, the church, and we're first going to look in the Old Testament for the richness of what it means that Jesus is the head of the church, what does that mean? Does that mean that we should have some organization that's been around for 1,500 years and, and call it the church? Does it mean that we should have a denomination? Does it mean that just a local body is the only thing you can call it? What is this church? So we're looking at this Old Testament background. And the first thing we look at is just the term itself can mean assembly, congregation, it's interchangeable. Those are two words that are interchangeable in the Old Testament. Um, And they identify a group of people who are either assembled or at least associated together. We looked in Deuteronomy, we looked in Exodus, and we saw that this term ecclesia could be used of an assembly gathered together around Mount Sinai or it could be used of a dispersed, a <clears throat> dispersed assembly such as all those in Egypt who were partaking of the Passover together. So you don't necessarily have to be gathered to be called this ecclesia, this church, this congregation, but it's still an identifiable group. And corresponding to this identifiable group is the terminology, the people of God. This term occurs 222 times in the Old Testament. It's inherent in this idea of assembly and congregation, the people of God. And so we looked again at Exodus and Leviticus. Chris himself spent some time because he encountered it in 1 Peter. It wasn't, uh, oh, we're both going to pick it out of the air. Um, <clears throat> he was addressing it specifically in 1 Peter. And I, I hope you all are realizing that 1 Peter is just such an awesome book. In my mind, it's one of the most awesome books in the New Testament. If you're going to memorize a book, First Peter should be your candidate. <clears throat> it doesn't seem like that when you first read it. You go, oh, I want some of the epistles of the Apostle Paul. But Peter, you start to see in a more subtle way, but in a deeper way almost, reaches back into the Old Testament, brings it forward in so many ways. And uh, you see the gospel laid out in just <clears throat> uh, with uh, just uh, beauty and precision in First Peter. Great book. So we looked at uh, the people of God. In Exodus 19, you shall be my treasured possession. In Leviticus chapter 26, I will make a covenant with you. I will dwell with you. I will walk with you. And we turn to Jeremiah. And we saw there's a new covenant. And that's a really important passage in the Bible. There are key passages in the Bible. One of them is Exodus 19. That's a key passage. And one of them is Jeremiah 31. And as we looked at that passage, and if you remember that passage there, Jeremiah in four verses puts forth a new covenant. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant in the future, a future new covenant. And it's going to be brought to pass through God's sovereignty. There's a certain promise about it. It's not going to maybe happen. It's going to happen. 
This covenant will bring the law written on the heart and internalized righteousness. It will bring everybody in the covenant to know God. You could be in the old covenant. You could be of the seed of Abraham after the flesh and not know God. It's a very confusing thing for people, especially when you're a young Christian reading the Bible and trying to make heads or tails. You, At least I did. At first, you assume everybody in the Old Testament must be a Christian. You kind of just make that equation. Then you start going wait a minute, that guy's not acting like a Christian and that lady's not acting like a Christian. And you start figuring out, okay, you can be an Israelite after the flesh but not be a person of faith. That's why there's things like the remnant in the Old Testament. <clears throat> but in this new covenant, very different from the old, if you're in this covenant, then you know God. And if you're in this covenant, your sins aren't being reminded every year in the Day of Atonement. Your sins have a full and final forgiveness at a cross of Christ that's accomplished once for all time. And you have an ultimate statement of the people of God. This is the ultimate people who belong to God, those who are in this new covenant. And we turn to Isaiah. And we have to remember that Isaiah is speaking to the exiles in chapter 40 through 55, actually 40 through the end of the, of the book. He's speaking to exiles. The first half of the book is giving you prophecy and giving you the times of Hezekiah and the history all around, but chapter 40 starts with, okay, there's going to be a carrying away of Judah itself to Babylon, and God has a message. He speaks a hundred years before it happens so that they will have confidence that this isn't a surprise to God, Um, maybe a surprise to them. shouldn't have been. He had a whole bunch of prophets telling him, if you don't repent, I'm going to carry you away. So it should not have been a surprise But when they opened their eyes in Babylon, at least they had an Isaiah to speak to them. And so Isaiah chapter 40 through 55 has what are known as the servant songs because this terminology of the servant of the Lord is so prominent. The servant of the Lord in these chapters is both an individual. We see his identity, his mission, his sufferings, and his glory, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the servant in these passages are also, it it alternates between the individual and the collective Jacob, Israel, the nations, this collective group of individuals are also called the servant, and in a few places, the servants of the Lord. So we looked first at the individual presentation. We picked Isaiah. I picked Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. And we saw in these chapters, or in these verses, Behold my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him, corresponding to that river Jordan where the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus and anoints him as Messiah. He was already the eternal son, but this is his being anointed as Messiah, being invested as Messiah, that official uh, person who is this servant of the Lord who's going to accomplish all the things spoken here. And at that river Jordan, God speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. To get at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, or in the words of Isaiah, in whom my soul delights. So Jesus is clearly the fulfillment of these passages. He's going to bring forth justice. That's one of the main things here in a world, in a wicked world. Justice is really hard to come by. Even those who are loudly proclaiming in our day social justice aren't really bringing out social justice. It's just their own version of neo-Marxism. They'll deny that all day long, but that's what they're doing. That's not what this is. Remember how bad the world was in Genesis chapter 6? What did God have to do with the world in Genesis chapter 6? It was so bad. There was so much oppression. There were men of renown. And when you think of men of renown out of Genesis 6, don't think George Washington. Think Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. Men of renown who were oppressive beyond measure. The world was just a boiling pot of iniquity and sin. And what did God do to fix it? He sent a flood. That's important because in our chapters we're going to be looking at this flood is, 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 is brought out as something to think about. But the servant of the Lord is going to come and he's going to bring not a temporary fix to human sin, but he's going to bring a permanent fix. He's going to bring a permanent fix that leads to a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. He will bring forth justice in the earth. And he's being to be appointed as a covenant to the people. He will be the mediator of a new covenant between God and human beings. He is the messenger of the covenant. He announces the covenant. He expounds the covenant. He ratifies the covenant. He mediates the covenant. He embodies the covenant. 
in so much as that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, the Messiah, the servant, will be appointed as a covenant to the people. And he's going to be a light to the nations. And here we are in Isaiah 42, 700 B.C., give or take. And here is God expounding a hundred years before Jeremiah 31 that there is going to be a covenant that is going to embrace all nations and bring light and joy to all nations. Is that you this morning? Are you here in this passage this morning? Are you one of those nations who has been brought into a covenant relationship with God and Jesus Christ. If that's true of you, if you have by faith come to Jesus, if you've said, Lord, I'm done with my sinful life, I'm done with my sinful self, and I'm coming to Jesus to be saved, then you are having the light of God in Jesus Christ that over 2,700 years ago he proclaimed would come to pass. You are a living fulfillment of this prophecy. So Isaiah 42, we look, the spirit-anointed servant, a righteous and just reign, a gracious redemption, smoking flax he won't quench, a future covenant, and it will include the nations. This is the message of that passage. And we also looked at a passage representing the collective group of people, a collective <clears throat> servant of the Lord. Isaiah 44, I think we went 1 through 7, but just very briefly, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. We see that twice, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, sort of a nickname, whom I have chosen. God's going to pour his spirit out upon them and his offspring. Kind of remind you of Acts, the promises to you and your children and to all those that are far off. The gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a blessing. I'm going to pour out my blessing. We... Read in Galatians chapter 3.14 where the Holy Spirit being given is called the blessing of Abraham. And so here we have through this servant Jesus, a servant begets servants and they will have the Holy Spirit all in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that in him would all the nations of the earth be blessed. Isaiah 44, 1-3. And so there's a people of God who serve God and therefore are the servants of God, and they have the Spirit of God. So before we continue, why don't we pray and ask the Lord to be with us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to your holy scriptures, and we can marvel at creation. But Lord, we should marvel at your word even more. That even through instruments of sinful human beings, your Holy Spirit secured a word from you that is absolutely 100% true and reliable. We can hang our hat on it. We can take it to the bank. We can bet our eternity on it. And Lord, we thank you for these holy scriptures, and they just don't come to us with philosophy. They don't come to us dictating doctrine. They come to us with you speaking to people and pouring forth your heart, your soul, your purpose, your goals, the future which we are now experiencing. Lord, we have literally a millennium of prophecy to demonstrate that this word is not ultimately written by human beings, but it's ultimately written by the living God who is the sovereign Lord of history. You tell us that throughout these Old Testament passages, that because you are the great creator, because you are the Lord, you are in charge of history and you will bring things to pass. And here we are, sitting and standing before you, blessing the name of your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it. And just pray this morning as we look at Isaiah 51, begin a little journey through these brief chapters, 51 through 55 of Isaiah, that, Lord, you would just bless it to our souls, that we can just sit back and, as we read so many times in that section, just have gladness and joy at what you have done for us, who we are in your Son, that our sins are forgiven, and that we have a relationship with you that's not some casual acquaintance, but it is based on the bond of covenant relationship which will never pass away. And we just thank you in Jesus for that. And just bless our time, we ask, in his name. Amen. 
So we're going to embark on Isaiah 51 through 55. I sort of debated whether to do this, tried to pass on, and it's like, nah, got to do it. Um, Isaiah 51 through 55 is a section of the Bible. And and again, if you had a list of the top 20 passages of Scripture you should know, understand, be familiar with, this is one of those sections. You should be absolutely familiar with these chapters. The message that is in them just is a summary and substance, substance of the entire Old Testament. If you know these chapters, then you know the message of the prophets. You truly do. And so we want to watch in these chapters as these these chapters from Isaiah, as Isaiah gathers together all of the divine covenants and weaves all of them together in one grand presentation of a coming kingdom of God, a coming reign of the servant of God, a coming glorious salvation that will one day be the foundation of a new heavens and a new earth. And so before we sort of get into these chapters, it's important to be familiar, to be reminded, if necessary, of the biblical divine covenants. There are five in the Bible. They do not include what is known as the covenant of grace. Now, there are those who say there's a covenant of grace, and they use this covenant of grace to sort of tie the Scripture together, and that's that's a noble purpose but it's not executed well. There's no such thing as a covenant of grace in the scriptures. There is certainly a theological construct that they have put together by dragging a few scriptures here and dropping it into the basket. But very interesting, if you look at the scriptures they drop into the basket, they all talk about the new covenant. I've never seen one scripture they've dropped in their theological basket that says anything other than the new covenant. No such thing in the Bible as a covenant of grace. And hence, when we say we are a new covenant theology, it's not like, well, we've got our own little basket we put things in. We're basically saying, no, there's five covenants in the Bible, and the new covenant is the ultimate covenant of God and supersedes and fulfills all that come before, and that we are in relationship to God through that covenant. So we are new covenant Christians. That's, that's all we're saying. Someone thinks new covenant theology is fancy or what? It's like, no, we just read the Bible and go, yep, five covenants. Uh, <clears throat> the last one fulfills all the rest, abrogates the old and brings in the new, and that's the covenant that relates us to God. So it's to that covenant that we want to <clears throat> live our lives and under which we live our lives. Well, the biblical divine covenants, those that the Bible actually states are covenants, not not some that are surmised to be covenants through theological, I don't know, jangling. The biblical divine covenants stated clearly to be covenants. The first one is God's covenant with Noah. Genesis chapter 9, Noah gets off the ark. The whole world has been flooded. There are, what, eight people walking off that ark? That's it, that's the human race. And next time rain clouds come up, what is somebody going to think? Here we go again. God says, no, it's never going to be here we go again, not ever. I'm making a covenant, Noah, with you and every living thing. My, my birds that come to my bird feeder are in covenant with God. Now, they don't know it, or maybe they do, and they're just not telling us. But they're in covenant with God. Your dogs and cats, your pets... Your mice, <clears throat> even those roaches you have exterminated, <laughs> they're actually in covenant with God, even though we're told that those are the only ones that will be left, you know, but <clears throat> they're still not banking on that. They're in covenant with God. That God is no longer again going to bring a flood on the earth to destroy man because of his wickedness. All right? So there's the Noahic covenant. And the Noahic covenant basically sets the stage and maintains the stage upon which the history of redemption will transpire. See, if every 500, 600, 800 years God had to destroy the earth, where would redemptive history be? So God has said, I'm not going to interrupt the continuity of history again. But now I'm turning to Abraham, which is the next covenant, and I am going to bring forth redemption in the world. So God has a solution, the permanent solution, and it's not another flood. It's another ultimate covenant in Jesus. So you have the Abrahamic covenant, and that covenant, Genesis chapter 12, really through chapter 22. 
You have this covenant being established with Abraham, being sort of added to, built up, until finally there's this final rendition of this covenant as Abraham offers up Isaac, his only son. And there's this covenant with God that in him would all the nations of the earth be blessed. When redemption is initiated, not just the stage set, but the redemption actually initiated, it is not a Jewish redemption. It is a worldwide, all the nations redemption. And the Jews are merely a historical funnel through which that redemption progresses until finally in Jesus Christ it goes to the entire world. The next covenant we have is the Mosaic Covenant, which we've spent a lot of time on. And it's good to understand it, but it is a covenant that certainly constituted a nation, Exodus 19, but it's a covenant that was composed of carnal ordinances, to borrow the terminology of the ASV of Hebrews chapter 9. Carnal ordinances imposed until a time of reformation. It was a whole bunch of type and shadow. That covenant could never save a soul, never promised to save a soul. It just said here, you need to live according to God, be the people of God in a very after-the-flesh way. And if you will keep this covenant, God will bless your life. Then you have in 2 Samuel 7, about 1000 BC, the Davidic covenant. So not only does God have a promise of there's going to be salvation to all nations, but that Melchizedek that was part of Chapter 14 in, the, in those dealings with Abraham that Melchizedek is now going to be expounded through the kingship of David. That David will, there will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek and there will be a Davidic king who will be at the right hand of God. And so King David inaugurates the reign of the kings and everything in the rest of the Bible that talks about kingship, whether it's in the Old Testament Histories, they all relate back to David. Remember, this king was good or bad in accordance of how well they served the Lord like David did. He was the gold standard for serving the Lord as a king. And the Davidic covenant, Jesus is said to be the son of David and the book of Romans opens up of the seed of David according to the flesh. And so here we have this Davidic covenant And these four covenants were made from 2500 B.C. to 1000 B.C. And and so if you can keep in your mind, Genesis about 2500 B.C., give or take. Abraham about 2000 B.C., give or take. Moses about 1500 B.C., give or take. David about 1000 B.C., give or take. That's really not hard. I mean, there's just four covenants. Put them in 500-year increments and and you're good to go if you... If you have a hard time thinking about it, just go, okay, David's 1000 BC and I can count 500 years back um, to each one. And so have these in your mind because these structure the history of redemption. These are the framework upon which and within which redemption uh, is uh, given, is stated, is described, and defined. Then you have the prophets. And if you're thinking about the prophets, also don't forget the Psalms. The Psalms belong in that world of the prophets. Yes, they're you know, it's called wisdom literature or poetry. That's their genre. But in terms of their content, they're unique in that they talk about the personal life of a believer through all the varied circumstances that one may encounter in, in their lifetime. But they're also prophetic. Psalm 2 by David takes the Davidic covenant and tells you what it's really going to be about. Psalm 110 by David takes the Davidic covenant and tells you what it's really going to be about. It's prophecy as well as Psalms. So include Psalms with the prophets. And what do these prophets do? Well, these prophets take the elements. They take the types, the shadows, the symbols, the imagery of those former covenants that have already occurred in history, and they weave together in the language of those covenants, they weave together prophecies and promises of a future coming covenant and kingdom. And so if you don't understand these four covenants in the sense of at least a basic knowledge of them, if you don't realize they've all been given when the prophets start speaking and writing, well, then you kind of miss and probably go off into wild interpretations of the prophets, using them for things they were never designed for. 
And so here you have the prophets from about 800 B.C. to about 400 B.C. I stick the, my, my, my little stake at 500 B.C. because it just gives me that 500-year increment. I can re- remember it. My brain's happy with that, and it's good enough for our purposes. And these prophets weave together a new covenant, the final, ultimate covenant, that new covenant that Jesus said when he held that cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating not just that Jesus died for our sins, but we are celebrating that he died for our sins and established a covenant that will never pass away. The new covenant. So these covenants, again, are just vital to really appreciating and rightly sort of interpreting and understanding the prophets. And so here they are, these five covenants. We're going to be embarking this morning on Isaiah 51 to 55, and we're going to start with Isaiah 51. And as we look into Isaiah chapter 51, if you'll go there, 51 verses 1 and 2, we read Isaiah saying, listen to me, or God saying through Isaiah, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and you who seek the Lord. This is the beginning of a new section, a section that is bounded on the one hand with Abraham and Sarah, and on the other hand with David and the Davidic covenant. So you have the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant bounding this passage. And inside of it, you have a lot of new covenant terminology. And inside of it, you have a uh, Noahic covenant being referred to. And all of the language of atonement and things is based on those types and shadows and symbols of the Mosaic Covenant. So within these chapters, you have all those covenants being brought together and interpreted for us into the future properly. So God says, listen to me. You guys that have kids, what are you telling your kids all the time? Now, every now and then, Wendy would crawl up on my lap and put her hands to my face like this and said, Dad, how you listen to me? So, but that didn't happen very often. It was usually the other way around. It's like, Wendy, are you listening? Isn't that kind of like us? You know, God speaks and we don't seem to pay attention or pay attention to the detail. God speaks in detail. He didn't give us very many words. There's only two million words in the whole Bible. That's really not many, many words to build an entire universe on, entire social structure on, your personal life on. And it doesn't take very many of those for God to speak in your heart. You, you know, when, when you're a Christian, God at times speaks to you. He just does, and you know it. And someone can say he didn't, but you know that he did, so you just, you just know it. And usually when he speaks to you, you don't get a paragraph, but you get what? Three to five words, maybe, that God speaks to your heart, Right? It doesn't take much, and you're full for how long? And you have confidence for how long? It doesn't take very many words from God. It just takes listening. It just takes paying attention. God is speaking, and here he's speaking to the remnant, the remnant that he will bring back from Babylon. He's speaking to any man who has ears to hear, and a heart to respond. He's speaking to anyone who is in their life by the grace of God, as we soon find out, have come to a place where righteousness and godliness matters. Any of us who have gone witnessing, any of us who have talked to coworkers or talked to really anybody that you bump into, family, you find out very quickly, you can bring up the topic of God and there might be some level of curiosity, but that soon wades, wanes in people's lives. And no one really wants to talk about God, and nobody really cares about righteousness. Righteousness has been replaced with, what's that phrase that the politicians bandy about for the last 50 years? The American dream. How many people want to pursue God? And righteousness. And God says, hey, if you are someone who has ears to hear, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, young or old, do you have ears to hear? Has God given you spiritual ears? That's the question in your life. 
I asked a young man one time, you know, what is your purpose in life? And he really just said to have a, to have a good life. And I'm like, well, what about knowing God? See, in this young man's life, it was not about seeking the Lord and pursuing righteousness. It was ultimately about having a good and fulfilled life. Again, just a less crass version of the American dream. The American dream is full of nothing but stuff, and so we wonder why our nation is coming apart at the seams when everybody's arguing about stuff. We need to have equity. What's that? Stuff. And we're going to destroy a nation and unravel the greatest nation the world has ever seen on the basis of, I think you have more stuff than me, and I don't like that. I mean, you you talk about the, the false prophets who try to parlay Christianity into your best life now to have stuff. If you give some money to me, the Lord will bless you and you'll have lots of stuff. No one seems to see through that. But there's a bigger scam going on. It's called critical race theory. It's called equity and inclusion. And what's the other? Yeah. It's about stuff in the end. Who has the stuff? And if you don't have enough stuff, then they ramp up all their liberation terminology and say, we're going to bring justice and equity and we're going to redistribute stuff. Try to talk to them about the Lord and they're blind as can be. They proclaim they are social justice warriors, but the righteousness and justice of God that the servant of God brings, they don't have a clue about nor know how to relate to and are not willing to hear or listen at all. God says, if you have ears to hear, if you have recognized that I am God and I made you in my image and I give you life and breath and all things, that your life in the end has no compass, no purpose, no meaning apart from the God who made you, and that if you're going to pursue me, if you're going to seek the Lord, seek Yahweh, then it must be through pathways of righteousness, not emotionalism. Not how do you feel about God, not how do you feel about me, as God would say, but are you pursuing righteousness? Are you obeying the Lord? Listen to me, God says. Are you all listening? How quickly does the world crowd out God? Sometimes I'm just thankful to God that I preach every week, or at least mostly every week, because it forces me into the scriptures. Which there's times when I'm like, that's not really the, the thing I'm really interested in doing at that time. And I'm sure that happens to you. So God's saying, listen, guys. Come on, listen. And he not only say listen, but he says, use your ears to hear me and use your eyes to consider, your spiritual eyes to consider some things. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. That's probably hard for us to relate to. I mean, we kind of get it, but we, we read it quick and we go, yeah, yeah, somehow you get rocks from somewhere. But start to think about it. If you were to go over to Egypt and want to you know, go, I want to find out about the Egyptians, everything you're going to find out about the Egyptians is made of What? Stone, right? The pyramids are made of stone, different kinds of stone. You see it when you look at the pyramids, there's the sort of dirty, ugly stones, but then you see they they faced it off with some really nice stones at one point. Those stones have been taken away to build other things. What about statues? Not that you glory in what the statues represent, but it's interesting history. What about the obelisks? They're all made of stone. When they had their buildings that remain, where they lived, where they had government, where they had temples, all these things that remain, there's, there's these stones for the walls that are made of sandstone or limestone. And then over the doors, any of you who are in construction, you know that over a door you couldn't use sandstone because it's weak. So they put granite up there. So they had quarries for granite, the Egyptians. They had quarries for sandstone. They had quarries for limestone. They had quarries for the stone that they would make into polished statues and things. They had stone quarries, flint, that they would use for weaponry. 
I mean, they had stones, was their whole society. They were just getting into bronze and copper, a little bit of iron in the time of Isaiah. But stone was the main building material. It was the main material of life. And so quarries were a big deal. So just in case you don't know what a quarry is, here's a picture of an Egyptian quarry. It's ancient, sort of eroded there. But there they would go to a mountain and start cutting blocks out of it, and they'd use different techniques. And actually, in, by about uh, you know, 2000, 2500 BC, they had perfected the techniques that we use to this very day to do quarry. You want to st- get a stone out of a mountain? Well, you've got to find a place where there's not cracks and stuff. And then you've got to chip all the way around and somehow break that stone out. Then you've got to carry it down and you've got to then you know, chip away more at it to sort of polish it up. And, and then you've got to size it. And there's, just, there's a whole lot to quarrying. Pretty sure it's a boring day, but whatever. It looks cool when you get to sort of visit a site. Here's some of the stones that were just sort of left hanging around from those quarries, still out there in the desert after thousands of years. Notice the ones that maybe got discarded, and there's one sort of in the front there. It's like maybe the guy just dropped it and got tired, and that was that. That's where that stone was going to stay. Here's a modern quarry for marble. Got to wear sunglasses on that job, but that's just so pretty. And here's this, this one amazed me. I mean, as far as the eye could see, this, was a, this is a quarry where they quarry stones for, uh, I couldn't really understand, it's down in South America, but they, they use it for concrete factories and things, and then they also cut the stones for things. That's just massive. So when God says, I mean, you know, look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug, Wow, that's what we're supposed to be looking at. But in Hebrew parallelism and in Hebrew poetry, that's just a poetic statement of, okay, stones have to originate somewhere and they have to be cut out and they have to be sized, shaped and brought to become part of something useful. He says, you Israelites didn't come up out of nothing. You didn't drop out of the sky. You, you, know, you didn't do things yourself. You were quarried. And that quarry started with Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. God refers us back to Abraham and Sarah. Both are mentioned. And one of the reasons Sarah is mentioned is because we're going to read of her again in Isaiah chapter 54. So she is brought into the path of our understanding. And we think of Abram. He's going to describe a couple things. When we think of Abram, who became Abraham, where was he quarried from? You all remember when we went through his life? Some of you kids, I think, were paying more attention at that time. Ur of the Chaldees. He was a worldly man who worshipped what? Idols. He was not a righteous man. God quarried him from the sinful human race. And he pulled him out and drug him from Ur the Chaldees up around the Fertile Crescent down into the land of Palestine. And God is saying, if you're going to understand your life, you need to contemplate your life. You need to listen. You need to look. You need to pay attention. You need to start considering who you are and where you've come from. As we've talked before, and Chris usually has some really great one-liners about identity and identity markers and Here God is saying you need to have your identity markers. You need to remember who you are, where you came from, where God brought you from. Do you all remember that? Gwen, saved at four years old, and she can tell you with detail how she was a wretched, rotten, dirtball sinner. At four years old, she knew that. She knew that to the bone. She knew where she came from. She was a sinner. But that's not what God is saying here. God is not saying, look back to your sinnerhood. I remember when the Lord saved me. I was a dirtball sinner, capital D-I-R-T. But that's not what God is saying. He's not saying, go back and look at your past. I mean, it doesn't take much to do that. 
How many of us wince at the old girlfriend or the old boyfriend? And you went, what was I thinking? Or the lies you told and worse. God is not saying go back and look at all those things. In a Spurgeon-esque way, the, the, there's a number of preachers who will talk about sin and say, look to the rock from which you were hewn. And the pit, using the, the older translation, the pit from which you were digged. And they misuse the passage altogether. God is saying, don't look back to your sinfulness and get all depressed. We've already had enough of that in Isaiah chapter 13 through what? 36, 35. Chapter 1 through 5, chapter 7, 8, 9. He's saying, you look back to that man that I quarried from Ur the Chaldees and brought him and gave him a promise that I am now going to fulfill in ways you can't imagine. A promise of blessing, a promise to all nations, a promise of grace, a promise of salvation. Go back and remember them and think about Sarah. Think about she gave birth to this child. Now as guys, when the, when the ladies start talking about having babies, we're like, okay, I'm checking out. I, you know, it's kind of interesting, but I'm just like, I don't get the details. I, I can imagine them, but... Let's talk about computer programs. But God. The guys leave, but God still hangs around. Because he made womanhood, and he made the womb. And he's all about it. And he says, you remember who gave birth to you in pain, the details. And remember also, not just simply the pain of the birth. But remember what it took for year after year to be barren and have to deal with the infamy of that. And she bore it. And when she had a child, it was a child that was a miracle. It was a child that is 100% from God. She was 90 years old. No way she was going to give birth on her own, by herself based on natural dynamics. Wasn't going to happen. God intervened. It was truly a miracle. Remember that. Remember where you came from. The miraculous work of God. And that's us. Remember where we came from. We are part of these promises. We can look back to Abraham and Sarah and say, that's where things took a turn from judging the world to saving the world. And we are at, the, at least nearer the end of that process than everybody who's gone before us. Let's glory in that. He was but one and I called him. He was there in Ur of the Chaldees all by himself. There wasn't a group of him like we have here, you know, talking about, well, I want to find God and and who is God? And what about us? There's no one there. He was just by himself. He was hanging out with everybody worshiping idols, going down and drinking beer with the best of them. And God called him. God appeared to him. God arrested him. And God brought him to himself. God called him a sovereign work of God. Calling is not an invitation. It's a sovereign work of grace. And then I blessed him and multiplied him. God did all these things. He took one man who was too old to have children, well, I guess he still could, but seemingly too old. Sarah, certainly too old. And God blessed and multiplied him to where we read about the myriads that in Egypt, Exodus 1, they were so numerous, the Egyptians said, we're going to start a genocide on them. We're going to start a planned parenthood on them. And so you have in Isaiah 51 this reference to Abraham and Sarah, the covenant with Abraham. That's how this section starts out. And God continues, indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He's now sort of switching his tune a little bit. And you will see the theme through these chapters, you, you have to understand, is that 
that God is talking about Zion, which is Jerusalem. There's a hill Zion in Jerusalem. It's, it's representative of Jerusalem. But he uses the term Zion because Zion means Jerusalem's my favorite place. It's not just a geographical city. It's where I dwell. It's my heart is there. My hope is there. My purpose is there. I'm invested there. And God had to take Zion, Jerusalem, as it were. He had to destroy it through the Babylonians and carry the people away, deported them all, carried them away captive, and destroyed the city. And that's what you see in these five chapters, that God is bringing Zion back. But Zion represents more than an earthly city, as is made clear throughout the passage. Indeed, the Lord who had to hide his face from Zion is now going to comfort Zion. The very start of chapter 40, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. He will comfort all her waste places. Now, some of you have gone to look for houses lately, and you go into houses, and most uh, real estate people, they say, well, to sell your house, you really need to get out of it and get all the junk out of it and have this sort of clean, empty house, right? So you go and you look at this clean, empty house, and it's just empty. And that way you can imagine all the things you would like to do to it. But that's not the terminology used here. God doesn't say he will comfort all her empty places. It's one thing to be empty. But their land got wasted. It got destroyed. There's a Moabite stone sort of an, a, a relic, uh, a, not relic, but a, an artifact, historical artifact from about 831, I think, B.C. And it's about this guy named Misha. It's in the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 3. There's a whole section there about Misha. And they found this Moabite stone where Misha gives his version of what happened in 1 Kings chapter 3. According to 1 Kings chapter 3, he ended up getting wasted. But Misha, most likely before he got fully destroyed, put up the stone and said, I fought the Israelites, and here's what I'm really proud of. I murdered 7,000 men, and I killed so many thousand women, and I ripped up their children, and I killed all their cattle, and I killed all their camels. I mean, he writes this down as if, man, I'm a really cool guy. So gangs of New York move over. That's what it means by waste places. When the Chaldeans came in, they utterly wasted the land of Israel. They wasted the city of Jerusalem. They dismantled the entire social order, and they destroyed and murdered and killed everything. A wasteland. How do do you comfort that? It's one thing, you know, when... You lose some money on a car deal. It's another thing if your house burns to the ground and you didn't have insurance and you got nothing left. A waste place. Now, sinners, the one thing we didn't understand, we knew we were kind of bad off. We figured, oh, well, maybe I can fix it, prop myself up with a few good works, you know, balance the, the, the account book here. We had no idea. We thought maybe we were empty, but they had, we had no idea that we were a wasteland. As Paul puts it in the most terrible words, without hope and without God in the world, we were a wasteland. And God came in grace and said, I am going to comfort Steve Cowden, in his wasteland. I'm going to comfort Chris Greer. I'm going to comfort four-year-old Gwen, who knows how sinful she really is. God goes on and says, and I'm going to make her wilderness. And this is the wilderness of Sinai. This isn't, you know, like the wilderness of going up into the mountains on a wilderness camp trip. This is the wilderness of Sinai. You talk about a wasteland, I mean, it's just, there's just nothing there but dirt and rock and 
and no water. And her wilderness, I'm going to make like Eden. And her desert, like the garden of the Lord. What a contrast. Wasteland, the most awesome garden that ever occurred on the face of the earth. That's a picture of salvation. That's a picture of a human heart where God comes in and says, I am going to save this sinner from his or her sin. And I'm going to restore their souls and I'm going to take them from wasteland to Eden. By grace. And so here we have this terminology you might have heard about, where is it in the New Testament? If any man's in Christ, he is a new... You think this might contribute to that? You think we have here a new Eden? You think we have a picture of salvation that is something new? He's not taking us back to the old Eden. He's taking us forward to the new one. If you think the first Eden was something, (laughs) wait till you see the second. You ain't seen nothing. You can't even imagine. John says we can't even imagine what it's going to be like. The garden of the Lord. A new Eden, a new creation. Terminology that what we're in verse 3 of chapter 51, the opener for this section. And there's going to be joy and gladness found in her thanksgiving and sound of melody. And everywhere you look in these passages is nothing but joy. Gladness, blessing. We're going to see it over and over again. Where do you think Paul gets, you know, rejoice? Again, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Where do you think that comes from? Did he just go, okay, I'm pulling out a Christian principle from the sky? Or it's like, wait a minute. Isaiah tells us probably seven times to rejoice with gladness, go to the feast of David, and just eat. As one fellow observes, when you finally get to chapter 55 of this, of this section, there's four things you've got to do. You've got to come to the Lord, you've got to turn from your sin, you've got to sing, and you've got to eat. God provides everything else. Joy and gladness will be found in her. And I don't know about you, I've had times in my life where I've thought, how could I ever have joy again? My soul is such a wasteland. My soul is so destroyed. I have a sadness in my heart that goes past the bone. It goes deeper than the bone. It goes right down to the most fundamental, elemental particles of physics. Joy and gladness will be found in you. God will produce in every life of every believer in this world and the next, ultimately, gladness and joy that comes from within and does not have to be manufactured. It's deeper than emotion. Emotions are great, but this is far deeper than that. As Jesus said, my joy will be in you, and your joy will be made full. And so we have this terminology of Isaiah 51. There's Abraham, there's Sarah, there's the Abrahamic covenant, there's a new creation. And again, pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear, O my nation. You're my people, but you're not listening. Pay attention. Maybe that's where some of you are a little, you know, off. You're off in the weeds because you haven't been paying attention. Maybe you've been reading, but it's in one eye and out the other, in one ear. You've got to pay attention. You've got to focus. You've got to invest some things. For a law is going to go forth for me, and I'm going to set my justice for a light of the peoples. Again, when people come to God, it's not about personal feelings. It's about justice. It's about righteousness. It's about principle. That's the foundation of our lives. Our personality is not the foundation of our life. Our character is. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. 
My arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait for me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. And here God, in verse 5 here, introduces a theme that he's going to pursue for a little bit. And he says, my righteousness is near. Now he doesn't mean my demands. He's going to have a law that makes demands, but he's talking about something different. He says, my righteousness is that in Hebrew parallelism is connected to my salvation. It's going to go forth. My righteousness. And my arms will judge. My arm they will wait for. That my arm means the servant of the Lord. God's right-hand guy. The one seated at his right hand in Psalm 110. And it's going to include the nations. So whatever is going on in these chapters, it includes the nations. You may hear terminology like Jacob and Israel. And some folks, because of their theological perspective, want to say, see, it's just for Israel and it's just for Jacob. It's like, uh, no. It's for the nations. It's for the coastlands, the coastal waters. It's for Fripp Island, the coastlands. Anybody there can get saved. And then there's this terminology, lift up your eyes to the sky and then look to the earth beneath. Start thinking about things. Here's a a picture I'm painting for you. Now no longer a quarry, but look at the sky and look at the earth. For the sky is going to vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. This righteousness, this salvation has an ultimate realization in a new heavens and in a new earth and a day of judgment. Here we start to get this apocalyptic language of judgment. Its inhabitants are going to die, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will not wane. A billion years from now, God's righteousness will not start to fade a little bit. You know, you put something in the sun and after a while it what? It fades. That's not God's righteousness. It will never fade. And God says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Ah, kind of like Jeremiah, laws are going to be in the heart. Yep. Don't fear the reproach of man or be dismayed at the revilings. You start to walk with God, what are you going to get? Opposition, right? Don't be surprised and don't be dismayed. Because the moth will eat them like garment and the grub will eat them like wool. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And you will see a picture of this. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Very quickly, God says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, that is Egypt, who pierced the dragon, again a picture of Egypt? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, What are we here now? We're in the Exodus, going across on dry land. Who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over, that old Exodus? Well, this salvation I'm going to bring is going to be a new Exodus. So the ransomed of the Lord will return from Babylon and ultimately will return from darkness and sin, Satan, and will come with joy and shouting to Zion. And again, what's going to be on their heads? Everlasting joy, gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Revelation chapter 21, no more crying, no more tears. So we've reached 11 verses into this section. We have Abraham, Sarah, that old uh, Abrahamic covenant. We have a new creation, we have justification. I didn't have space for it, but we have a new exodus. And when we read the book of Romans, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Here is the righteousness of God. Where did Paul get this terminology? Right out of Isaiah. It's terminology that Paul himself says, this righteousness of God in Jesus Christ is witnessed by the law and the prophets, and surely Isaiah 51 through 55 is a place where it is witnessed. It's now, it's an eschatological now. It's the first coming of Jesus now. Now, apart from the law. And it's apart from the law. It's a righteousness that is something that is beyond the old covenant. It is a new covenant now and a new covenant apartness. 
And it's apart from the law, and it comes, a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ to all who believe, being justified as a gift of grace through the redemptions in Christ. Isaiah 51 is absolutely about a new covenant. And as we pass through these, these chapters, it's just one of the things that's just gripped me, because I used to think, well, Jeremiah talks about the covenant, but Isaiah, he just talks about the Holy Spirit and other things, which are really great things. I never knew until I started this study that Jeremiah gives us four verses about a new covenant. Isaiah gives us five chapters. And that's where we'll pick up next week, Lord willing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this word, this word that was written 2,700 years ago, that the gospel was not invented by people in the first century, it was invented by you in the seventh century B.C. Lord, everything we read in the New Testament is an outgrowth of what you have already spoken before. You have demonstrated without any, any doubt that this is your holy word and that the gospel is true and that we can live our lives on it and hang our hats on it. And Lord, just pray you would fill our souls with the gladness and joy that we read here. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for our sin and rose for our justification, that you ratified this covenant that's being introduced in our passage today. Thank you for my brother, and just pray you bless everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.